You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, February 22nd, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Benjamin Page and Martin Gillens, the authors of Democracy in America, What Has Gone Wrong and What We Can Do About It. Archon Fung, Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean, and Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government moderated. Jane Mansbridge, Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values, served as a respondent. Thank you everyone for coming to this afternoon's Ash Center uh, Democracy event. Uh, my name is Archon Fung. I help to organize the democracy events here at the Ash Center at the Kennedy School. In these public conversations, we seek to gain a deeper understanding of the challenges to successful democratic governance and participatory democracy around the world. This spring, we are turning our attention to the many challenges that American democracy faces, polarization, enormous economic and political inequality, rock bottom levels of trust in government, electoral manipulation, and many other challenges. In addition to tonight's event, I want to highlight two other spring discussions about what's wrong with American democracy and what we can do about it. On March 21st, Steve Levitsky and Dan Ziblatt will discuss their book, How Democracies Die, which many of you know has gotten a lot of attention lately. On May 3rd, we'll end the spring with a symposium on full participation in the United States. With just a little more than half of our voting age population turning out for major elections, the US is 28 out of 35 among major democracies in terms of electoral participation. That puts us near the bottom of the list. The topic of this symposium will be what would it take to get to high levels, respectable levels of participation, 80%, 90%. We'll investigate some solutions like automatic voter registration that are in some states in the US, but also uh, out of the box proposals and strategies like mandatory voting, or uh, as Miles likes to call it, what's the? Universal voting. Universal voting. It's the kinder, gentler uh, term for the, word, uh, for the measure. Tonight, though, uh, Ben Page and Marty Gillins will lead our conversation about American democracy. The puzzle is this. A simple definition of, of democracy is majority rule. If America is a democracy, then, how can it be the case that there are so many things that majorities want that this government doesn't do? To take one important contemporary issue, about 80% of Americans think that people on no-fly and terror watch lists should be barred from purchasing firearms but they are not. There is no law or regulation that prevents them from buying guns. For this and other policies, why is American government so unresponsive to what majorities want? This situation begs the main question, in what sense is the United States a democracy? How can we make this country more democratic? Uh, Marty Gillins is a professor of politics at Princeton University. His research examines many topics, representation, public opinion, and mass media. He is the author of many books, including Why Americans Hate Welfare and Affluence and Influence, a prize-winning book, uh, of which tonight's uh, discussion is a subsequent um, outgrowth. Ben Page is the Gordon Scott Fulcher Professor of Decision-Making at Northwestern University. I didn't know that was your title. His research interests include public opinion and policymaking, mass media, democratic theory, political economy, the presidency, and American uh, foreign policy. He's the author, also author of many books, including Who Gets What from Government, uh, What Americans Really Think About Economic Inequality, and Who Deliberates, Mass Media in Modern Democracy. 
so Ben and Marty will uh, present the main arguments of their book and some steps forward, some steps we might take. And then Jenny Mansbridge will uh, offer some comments to kick off the discussion part of the program. Jenny Mansbridge is the Charles F. Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values here at the Kennedy School. Her incredibly wide range of work includes studies of representation, democratic deliberation, everyday activism, and uh, important, she's very committed to the understanding of collective action and free rider problems. She's the author of Beyond Adversary Democracy and Why We Lost the ERA. She is also a past president of the American Political Science Association. Please welcome Marty, Ben, and Jenny. Thank you, Archon, uh, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, <clears throat> I've been a little under the weather, so uh, if you can't hear me, if I start drifting off, like just you know, wave your arms or something, and I'll try to come back. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit um, about uh, the first part of our subtitle, What's Gone Wrong, and then leave it up to my co-author, Ben, to talk about what we can do about it. Now, I probably don't need to spend much time convincing you that something has indeed gone wrong. If you think about the toxic nature of our politics, the deteriorating status of our infrastructure, the state of public education, health care, the stagnant wages that most Americans have experienced over the last 40 or so years, um, it seems obvious that something has indeed gone wrong. And what we argue is that at the core of these and many other problems is a failure of American democracy and specifically a failure of what we call democratic responsiveness. Right? That is to say, a failure of the political system to provide the kinds of policies that the majority of the public says it wants. Now, <clears throat> the lack of democratic responsiveness, we argue in turn, is due in large measure to two factors. First, an inequality in political influence. Right? That is to say, a government that's receptive to the needs of the well-to-do, of organized interests, but not of ordinary citizens. And secondly, uh, the problem of polarization and gridlock. That uh, government, um, when it responds, it responds to the uh, powerful few, but it doesn't respond much at all to anybody. Um, and the ability um, of uh, actors to prevent uh, policy change allows those who have uh, power to do so. So um, it sort of further advantages um, the wealthy and uh, organized interests. Now, there's many features to a democracy, right? A free press, fair elections, an independent judiciary, and so on, rule of law. We're going to focus on the last of these um, in our work, that is responsiveness of policymakers to citizens' preferences. Not because these other factors aren't critically important, but because we feel that it's the lack of responsiveness that's kind of at the core of many of the sort of social problems um, that I just uh, mentioned. So in order to understand the nature of responsiveness and the lack of responsiveness, we need to know something about what it is that citizens want their government to be doing. Excuse me. Um, and more particularly, we need to know not just citizens in general, but what better off middle class, less well off citizens, like how their preferences uh, differ, and also what interest groups uh, want government to do. So to get some purchase on this rather difficult question, uh, I collected survey data that asked 
random samples of Americans um, about their preferences on a wide range of policies. Um, and for each policy, they were asked whether they support or oppose that particular uh, policy change, all, all having to do with federal government policy. So questions like, should we raise the minimum wage to say 675 an hour would be one example from a survey question. Should America send troops to fight in Bosnia? Respondents were asked if they supported or opposed NAFTA or other trade agreements, whether they would favor or oppose letting homosexuals serve in the military. So a very wide range of policies, economic policies, social policies, sort of um, moral issues like um, uh, gay rights and so on. Um, altogether, about 1,800 specific proposed policy changes from the 1980s, the 1990s, and the early 2000s. And for each of these proposed changes in federal policymaking, I have measures of the percent of respondents at the middle income, the median income, um, who say that they favor that proposed policy change, the percent of high income respondents who say that they favor that proposed policy change. And high income in this analysis consists of people at the 90th income percentile, so maybe about $125,000 today in uh, family income. Um, I also have a measure of interest group alignments on these 1,800 or so issues, which is based on a set of the most powerful interest groups in Washington and a measure that sort of looks at how many, if any, of those groups were aligned on one side of the issue as opposed to the other. And then whether that proposed policy change was in fact adopted. Um, and in this uh, analysis, whether it was adopted within four years of the time that the question was asked. Um, okay, so what you find when you look at the relationship between the preferences of high-income Americans or the preferences of interest groups on these 1,800 issues and the likelihood that that particular policy change was adopted, you see the kind of expected relationship, which is to say unpopular policies. Those get low levels of support, say on the left side of the left chart on this slide, policies that were only supported by 10% or 20% of affluent Americans were very unlikely to have been adopted. So only, say, 10% of those policies or so were actually adopted. And as the policy became more popular, the probability of it having been adopted increases. And we see the same thing with regard to interest groups on the right side of the slide. And both of these, um, as well as the analysis of uh, sort of middle-class Americans, take into account the preferences of the other groups. So independently of what interest groups or median income Americans think, this is the estimate for the strength of the relationship between policy support or opposition among high income Americans and policy outcomes in this data set. So this is the relationship that you might expect to see if these groups had some influence over government policymaking. But what we see for middle income Americans is very, very different it seems to make not a bit of difference whether once we take into account the preferences of the high income and of interest groups, it makes no bit of difference whether the majority of middle income Americans are opposed to a policy, favor that policy, um, the likelihood of it being adopted is essentially identical uh, in either case. This to me is a extremely disturbing slide and um, really reflects a country, right, where people with power 
organized groups call the shots, and ordinary citizens are essentially political bystanders. Now, why is it that government responds to the well-to-do and not to ordinary citizens? Um, after all, we have elections every two years, right? People go out and vote. Why can't they just vote the office holders who aren't you know, responding to their preferences and their needs out of office? Well, occasionally that does happen, and all candidates and all uh, office holders are not the same with regard to the kinds of policies that they pursue and which sorts of groups they're responsive to. Um, but all candidates, at least for federal office, are the same in at least this one regard. They all depend on lots of money to run a successful campaign. You simply can't run a viable campaign for federal office, for Congress, um, without access to vast sums of money. Uh, then it's also the case that the amount of money that is being spent on these elections has gone up dramatically over time. So after adjusting for inflation, we see that the cost of federal elections, in this case congressional elections, has close to tripled uh, since 1980. And it now takes about a million dollars to win a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, about $10 million to win a seat in the U.S. Senate, and every four years, each presidential campaign spends roughly a billion dollars in their efforts to win the presidency. Now, where does all this money come from? Increasingly, it comes from smaller numbers of wealthier and wealthier individuals. So this slide shows you the share of all spending on federal elections that comes in the contributions from the top 0.01%, one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of the American adults. And in the 1980s, only about 10% of the money that was spent on elections came from this very small uh, group of uh, donors. And that's increased, as you can see, quite dramatically over time so that in the last two elections, this is true for 2016 as well, about 40% of the money on federal elections came from this teeny sliver uh, of the American public. Um, another serious concern with regard to the role of money in politics recently is the increase in outside spending or independent expenditures. And as you can see, this is something that's been growing kind of slowly through the 1980s and the early 2000s, and then shot up between 2008 and 2012. And what happened between 2008 and 2012? Yeah, Citizens United and the development of super PACs. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and this money is used overwhelmingly to attack opposing candidates by these uh, outside groups. Um, so it not only contributes to the concentration of money from smaller numbers of richer individuals, but also further erodes the sort of quality of discourse in our elections. Um, the sources of outside spending, um, super PACs, do comprise the majority of money that's spent by, uh, so this is anybody other than uh, campaigns and parties. Um, these outside groups get, um, are mostly funded through super PACs. Um, super PACs can take donations of any size. They do have to report uh, who makes those donations, although those 
that uh, reporting can also be um, sort of obscured by contributing through organizations rather than in an individual donor's name. Um, at any rate, super PACs form the majority, and then uh, the next largest section is from these 501c4 and 501c6 organizations, which are not required to uh, re you know, reveal their donors um, at all. Um, and the source of super PAC money, not surprisingly, comes from the super rich. So in 2012, 93%, um, the vast majority of money that was contributed to super PACs came from only a bit over 3,000 people. So that's one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of American adults. And in fact, the majority of super PAC money came from just 159 individuals, each of whom gave at least a million dollars um, in their efforts to sway elections uh, in 2012, federal elections only. Um, in fact, those 159 people in 2012 gave more money than the combined small donors, 3.7 million small donors to the Obama and Romney campaigns put together. So this is a huge amount of money coming up from a very small number of obviously very rich people. All right, so over time then we've seen that the sources of uh, campaign contributions have become more concentrated, the costs of campaigns have increased, and the consequence, of course, is that office holders uh, are spending more time raising money and less time making policy um, than they used to. And the people that they spend their time with in raising that money is increasingly um, smaller numbers of the richest Americans. Now, this might not make as much of a difference if the political preferences of rich people were the same as the political preferences of the public as a whole. But that turns out not to be the case, at least on many important issues. So these data uh, come from a 2011 survey that Ben conducted um, where the respondents were multimillionaires, people who had at least $10 million uh, in assets. And in 2011, at a time when unemployment was over 9%, three times as many of these uh, rich multimillionaires thought that the deficit was the most important problem facing the country than thought that unemployment was. A ratio that was very different from what the public as a whole thought were the most pressing problems at the time. Excuse me. <clears throat> when asked whether government should see to it that no one is without food, clothing, or shelter, almost 70% of the public, but about 40% of the multimillionaires agreed. When asked whether the minimum wage should be high enough so that no family with a full-time worker falls below the poverty line, almost 80% of the public, but just half that number of uh, multimillionaires uh, agreed. And when asked whether government should see to it that everyone who wants to work can find a job, about two-thirds of Americans overall thought that that is indeed a responsibility of the government, but as you can see, fewer than one in five rich multimillionaires agreed. Now, of course, there's rich people of every political stripe, but on average, the preferences that they hold seem to diverge quite dramatically from the preferences of the public overall. Now, I focused uh, so far a lot on money and elections, but of course that's not the only problem that leads to 
uh, the lack of responsiveness that leads to a set of policies that don't reflect uh, the needs or the preferences of the majority of American citizens. Um, there's also problems with lobbying. Right? So uh, the interest group universe in Washington is strongly tilted toward business and professional organizations. Um, and the amount of money that's spent on lobbying is enormous, about $3 billion a year. Um, there's now about 12,000 registered lobbyists in Washington. That's about 22 times as many, as, the, as many people as there are members in Congress, <laughs> or 22 lobbyists per representative. <clears throat> so lobbying is another uh, contributing factor. An unrepresentative electorate or an unrepresentative set of voters who turn out in elections, uh, to be more exact, uh, also contributes to this problem. So even in presidential elections with the highest levels of turnout, the people who vote are disproportionately affluent and hold on um, many issues more conservative views than non-voters. And that's much more the case even in lower turnout elections in non-presidential years, and most especially in primary and local elections, which often get uh, turnout in the uh, single digits or the very low double digits. Um, and then there's the problem of polarized parties, which have been captured um, by special interests. And um, in a system like ours, with lots of checks and balances, lots of veto points where policy change can be stopped, having polarized parties means that uh, any group with a modicum of interest can stop policy change that they disagree with. So the desires of citizens are more often thwarted um, by a lack of responsiveness to the things that they would like government to do than by government doing things that the citizens don't want. Which isn't to say that doesn't also happen. Right? The recent tax bill is probably a great example of uh, the Congress doing something um, that citizens were clearly, uh, on average, strongly opposed to. Um, but it does mean that even large majorities of Americans um, are not getting the policies that they want. So here we're looking not at an estimate of influence, but simply at the relationship between the, excuse me, between the proportion of the public as a whole um, who says they support a particular policy change and the likelihood of that change being adopted. And um, as you can see, unpopular policies are not particularly likely to be adopted. But even popular policies, even policies that are supported by 80% or 90% of the American public still have a less than even chance of being adopted. The result, of course, is that many policies that could be strongly beneficial and that are strongly favored by large numbers of Americans simply don't get adopted. So 60 to 90% of Americans say that they think we should have stricter regulation to combat global warming, more regulation of finance, oil, and healthcare industries, more government assistance to the poor, uh, Medicaid should be allowed, or Medicare rather, should be allowed to negotiate prices on prescription drugs. We want more spending on education, on infrastructure, increases in social security benefits, a higher minimum wage, government jobs for the unemployed, expanded background checks on gun control, and <coughs> notification of parents when their minor children are seeking abortions. These are all very popular policies. You may agree with them. You may not agree with them. I agree with most of them, but not all of them. But the point is that these are policies that are overwhelmingly supported by the public, and yet in a society that calls itself a democracy, um, are simply not adopted. So that's a little bit about the problems. 
uh, to talk to you about the solutions. I'm going to turn it over to Ben. <laughs> That was the depressing part. Now we have the hope, the vision for the future. Let's leave that up for a bit because I think it's a good transition. Our argument is that if, in fact, democratic responsiveness were improved, a lot of substantive problems would, would be solved or at least would be helped a great deal. And now all I have to do is find the arrows on this machine. At the bottom, on the right. They're orange. Ah, they're orange. Got them. OK. Um, so the basic idea is then that democratic reforms would make a substantive difference. And there are essentially three types of reforms that we think are especially important. Uh, and these, these are fairly obvious. One of them um, has to do with limiting the power of big money. Another has to do with enfranchising all citizens. And let me say immediately, uh, particularly since you have a conference coming up, it seems to, to me anyway that the issue is not just increasing turnout, it's making turnout more representative. In some cases, those are quite different goals. And then the third, both of those things are relatively easy conceptually because we know a lot of simple reforms that would make a big difference. Most of them, if the political will is there, can be accomplished just by a rule change or, or, a, or a relatively easy change in the law. Some of the long-run problems are a little more difficult. But let's start with curtailing money power. Now, it's obvious to everybody the Supreme Court's a big problem about this. Um, Ever since, this is not just Citizens United, it goes back to Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976, really misguided thinking about the constitutional law. And so it's worth working on this. A number of people are working on it. A change in the court will probably be necessary. But I think the point I want to make most strongly is a lot can be done even before that happens. And probably the key is public funding of elections. The, the logic of it's very simple. Even if you still had private funding, public funding could at minimum reduce the marginal impact of private money. And under certain circumstances, it could, in fact, replace it. Um, there are a bunch of ways that you can bring public money into the picture. Matching is a popular one. Talking to Bernie Sanders staffers, for example, they're very enthusiastic about matching small grants, giving people skin in the game, letting activists have a voice. Um, and I see arguments for that. It seems to me, however, that in the long run, the best solution is what some people have called democracy vouchers. And the idea of a democracy voucher is you do public financing in a decentralized way in which each citizen gets basically the same amount of money to dole out to candidates, any candidates, for nomination, for election, for one office, for another office, but a substantial amount of money so that an attractive candidate who has a lot of popular support can get a good solid amount of money and actually uh, conduct a campaign. And then if you tie this to a voluntary agreement 
to not accept private money when you're going to get this public money through vouchers, uh, that could actually replace private money. It would have to be generously funded, but it would work. I'm not going to say a lot about lobbying because that takes us back to the Supreme Court. Probably ending corporate political donations is absolutely crucial to that, and that, I imagine, will take a change in the court. Uh, but let's move right on to enfranchising citizens. As, as I say, representativeness of the electorate is probably the crucial thing. If you had a random sample of voters voting, even if it were only 50%, that wouldn't be wonderful. But it would be very different from now, where the, the sample of people who vote is quite biased, basically against minorities, against low-income people. So that if you want to achieve representativeness, uh, the key things seem to be, and two of them aren't on this list, but I'll mention them. Um, to start out with the idea of universal registration. Personal registration is onerous. It's the root of most of the American problem of low bias turnout. Once you've got universal registration, the way most countries in the world do, then it makes sense to work on convenience, like election day holidays. Right now, the, the faddish proposals mostly have to do with convenience voting, partly because that's acceptable to upper income people who are the ones who get saved most of the trouble. It's the same people who will vote um, anyway, but it's a little easier for them. So why, watch out for convenience voting ideas, even all male. Um, mail-in ballots, et cetera. Um, but convenience voting is a terrific idea once you've got everybody registered and once you have other ways of making sure that they can vote, including rolling back laws that make it difficult. But also, what's not on the picture is making sure they're attractive candidates, making sure that they've got choices. Um, so there's a real reason to vote. And along with that, make sure that they know there's an election happening and know where to go. Um, and that's going to take us in a minute to question the whole idea of these crazy primary elections with extremely low turnout. A lot of people aren't even aware they're happening and very, very biased turnout. So let's go to longer-term reform issues that also take us back to uh, the matters that Marty mentioned about polarization and gridlock. Um, and remember that it is, in fact, true the large part of lack of responsiveness is through inaction, through not doing things that majority of Americans want. It's not so much through putting over things on, on majorities. Just a little illustration to remind you, we had one pretty serious shutdown in 2013. We've been toying with the idea ever since. But more often, things simply don't happen much more quietly. Why gridlock? I'm not going to give you the big academic lecture about this. It, it, it seems to us that Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein had it pretty much right that they're interacting factors. One is in the structure of government, 
multiple veto points. That means separation of powers among chambers and uh, you know, presidency, Congress, Supreme Court. Um, but that interacts with these polarized parties. So that if you have two-party division of government, it almost guarantees that one party can shut down what the other party wants to do. And we've seen a whole lot of that, especially in the Obama administration. Um, why polarized parties? Well, again, let's not go into a huge amount of detail. But there, it appears that these low salience primary elections in one-party districts are really important because big money and extreme ideological activists can dominate the outcomes. They can send to Congress um, representatives who just do not represent their districts. And that's been particularly true of the Tea Party faction uh, of the Republican Party. Along with those problems, there are these sort of procedural and rule problems with the way the House and the Senate work. Um, the, the House of Representatives is supposed to be the people's house, according to the founders. But right now, it's the majority party's house. And the majority party right now and often in our recent history has been very, very unrepresentative of the American people as a whole. And simply through the so-called Hastert rule and a bunch of procedures, <laughs> they simply ignore um, even a large minority. The Senate is really a disgrace in international terms there, except maybe in Switzerland. I think there's no other upper chamber that's remotely as unrepresentative as our Senate. So how to solve the problem? Well, given this diagnosis, it's pretty easy to see what you need to do. Um, one of the things is to do something about primary elections in one-party districts. Um, and some of the solutions turn to independent commissions, which will um, basically counteract gerrymandering, deliberate party gerrymandering. Turns out gerrymandering is only about a third of the problem. So-called natural one-party districts are a much bigger part of the problem. To deal with that, it turns out there's nothing you can do in one-party states with a lot of districts. Suppose you try to make every district equally competitive between the parties. In a 60-40 state, the 60s would win every single seat. So an independent commission would do you no good. And in Marty's and my book, we go through, we kind of tell the evolution of our thinking, gradually realizing that the usual remedies really will not work. And the only thing that makes a lot of sense is to get rid of those primaries completely, use multi-member districts, have elections only in the general election when people actually show up, know there's an election, and so forth and do ranking and instant runoffs. And there are technical issues and so forth that I won't go into. That might be a thing to look at in our book if you have, if you have a chance to look at it. We call it proportional representation, American style. There'd be several benefits of this. One of them is more centrist candidates, the way California has been sort of awkwardly aiming for, not quite getting. 
But another benefit is pressure on the major parties. Because if you have open access, um, simply by getting some signatures on a ballot, the major parties are going to have to pay attention to voters. They're going to have to worry about it. If, if they don't, a third party can rise. If not, there won't be a need for a third party. Um, then, once this is done, once parties are democratized in this way, I'm speaking, pardon me, of legislative parties, then we can worry somewhat more about getting rid of the filibuster. I, I think a lot of opponents of the filibuster have been rethinking. Um, when they realize that if you have a majority in the Senate, which is highly unrepresentative of the public, maybe the filibuster is the only thing that prevents horrible things from happening. But once parties are democratized, the filibuster is clearly undemocratic, and so basically is the hold. Um, the, the extreme bias of the Senate, that's the toughest single problem in American politics, because it's built into the Constitution. The founders even pretended they could forbid amendments. That's nonsense. You know? But you'll hear the, the, the argument about Article 5. All you have to do is amend Article 5. Nonetheless, amending the Constitution is hard. So this is a pretty big menu we're talking about here. I mean, very big menu, especially when it comes to the Senate. So the question is, is any of this practical? And it seems to me the little things are actually easy. As I said, they just require some political pressure on representatives. The Hastert rule, all it takes is a majority of the House of Representatives to change that. Um, just, it's just a rule of the body. And there are others that simple federal laws. Some of these things that require constitutional amendments are much harder. But we urge people to think in terms of possibility. It has actually happened before. It happened with the progressives, happened with the civil rights movement. And then I have some inspiring pictures of these things happening historically. I'm not sure that's the perfect picture. It looks sort of you know, cranky. Um, but this is 1912 Progressive Party <laughs> Uh, convention, Teddy Roosevelt being nominated for president. This is at the height of the period when both Republican and Democratic parties had a lot of progressives and subsequently did some very pro-democratic things, also some not so great things that we want to avoid. Um, this is the Selma March 1965 for voting rights for African Americans. Very shortly after that, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So again, there's plenty of history uh, of success. And some of those successes came in a similar period in the first Gilded Age, toward the end of it, when people were really sick of it. They didn't want corrupt politics. And they rose up and did something. So the question is, can that be happening now? And our tentative answer is, well, there are signs of it actually happening. Um, the resistance energy is very big. The main question in my mind about that is, can the resistance be persuaded to think long term and work for democratic reforms? Um, there are a lot of groups and organizations that are active. Um, and as, as we say, 
the Kennedy School actually has become kind of a central point, in, and especially the Ash Center, for coordinating, organizing, and encouraging this work. These are examples of some of the groups, and I want to highlight, you know, over there on the, the lower right, Common Cause and Sierra Club, and you could put in Communication Workers of America. These big mass movement organizations have formed something called the Democracy Initiative, which has a potential to help mobilize millions of people. And then I hope we have Move On in there, um, which also has potential for net-type organizing in millions of people. So we close with a women's march and say, there's the energy. If it gets directed toward democratic reform, we believe it can actually happen. There's the book, folks. <laughs> Actually, there's one more slide that shows the book cover, but we can do without that. <laughs> <They're> being... <clears throat> so um, Ben and uh, Marty ended with a call for a social movement. And I'm going to take that up. I support that call. As they write in the book, every so successful social movement is based on serious grievances that violate shared values. And the relevant serious grievance right now is that, in the US, is that democracy is not fair. That's a pretty basic value. It's a pretty serious grievance. The democracy now weights some people's wants and interests way, way more than others. And the irony is that democracy itself evolved as a way to legitimate the government we need to solve collective action problems and get justice. And it, democracy legitimates outcomes by giving everybody an equal vote. That's the core of the legitimation. So in school, when you take a vote, um, you know, whether to play dodgeball or baseball, and sort of how many people want to play dodgeball, how many people want to play baseball, you take it for granted that the larger number should win, at least this time. You might want to take turns the way Lonnie Guinier suggests um, and play dodgeball this time, baseball the next. But even then, the turns would be allocated according to the number of people who wanted to play the game. The legitimating feature of democracy is that each person counts for one. So what happens when, as is true in the United States at the moment, 67% of the population thinks, quotes, the rich buy elections. That's a survey question, compared to, say, 17% in Germany who think that. Well, what happens is that democracy decays from within. People turn away from the system in disgust. They vote for people who attack the system. They vote for people who say they'll drain the swamp. So making the vote equal again is a great focus for a social movement. And we never know when a social movement's going to emerge. We didn't know when the civil rights movement was going to emerge. We didn't know when the environmental movement was going to emerge. Nobody predicted it. Nobody predicted the feminist movement. Nobody predicted this little Me Too, or maybe not the little Me Too movement. You, I'm not saying it's going to happen. But the disgust and the worry and the depth is there. 
This is the core of our democracy, the equal vote. And you can see it's gone. So I've studied social movements a bit. One of the books was called Why We Lost the ERA. Um, that's about the movement to put the Equal Rights Amendment back in the Constitution, in the Constitution for Women. And so there, here are a couple of things to know about social movements. First, social movements are always hydra-headed, many heads. The different parts of the movement spring from different places, and they have different directions, as well as having the same overall direction. So there's always going to be conflict in a social movement. And conflict's fine, as long as the people who are in the conflict don't hold a grudge. And the problem is that so, social movements attract exactly the kind of people who have very, very strong views and often do hold a grudge. So social movements need people like the people in this room. These are people who can enter. You all are people, most of you. I imagine there are a couple who are not like this. But most of you are people who can enter a conflict and make the arguments and try to win and struggle and try to do that and then find ways to get along when you can't agree. So a wonderful book a while ago about soccer in Brazil showed how football bound the nation together through conflict. So parts of a city would uh, play against each other uh, very fiercely. And then one side would win. Best players from the parts of the city games would be chosen to play for the city in the state games. And that bound the cities together against other cities. And then the players from the state games would play in the nation. And then finally, the nation players would be sent to, fight, to, to play against another country. That bound the country together. Now, the point that I want to make here is that those Brazilian soccer players had to be disciplined. Because at each stage, they had to be teammates with people they just fought very ferociously. So that's what has to happen in the social movement as well. You can't lose sight of the higher values for what you're fighting because the lower ones you oppose one another. You have to lose, learn the discipline of working with those you oppose. It's all very well to go out on a march, and it was incredibly inspiring. Probably half the people in this room were at that march, whether if you weren't, you missed a great deal. But, but that's not the hard work. The hard work is, is getting along with the people whose opinions you have just been fighting as hard as you could. So many-headedness gives, gives social movements their adaptability and their strength, but it also leads them open to these debilitating features. So a sec short second point. Anyone who's taken Marshall Ganz's class in organizing or Hari Han's, read Hari Han's book on organizing knows the importance of spreading responsibility and leadership. Um, the great economist Albert Hirschman once pointed out the, the difference between a model in which using something means you use it up, like breakfast cereal, after you've eaten it, it's not there anymore, and using something like a muscle, in which when you use it, you make it stronger, and you can draw on it again. And spreading responsibility is a little bit like that muscle, that um, it allows the organization's muscles to grow too, too as well as it. And often it takes even more time to have other people do it than to do something yourself. But it's usually worth it if you pick the right people and you give them the responsibility and so forth. 
So there's a lot of work on organizing out of, the, out, out of there. There's a lot of it coming out of the Kennedy School. Um, and if the social movement that Marty and Ben want to have happen, happens, it'll be because of people like the people in this room. So finally, one last point, very short. There's a lot of roles out there. You can create your own organization. That's what people at the Kennedy School tend to like to do. Um, but uh, you know, you can run for office. A lot of people are running for office. A huge number ran for office. A lot of women decided after this march to run for office. Um, and there's a new organization, 314, uh, named after the first three digits of pi. Uh, it's dedicated to getting scientists to run for office. So of course, they're going to call themselves 314. And then you say, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, but um, but there's, they've, got, they've got thousands of scientists running for office. And here at the Kennedy School, the program that uh, trains women to run for office, it's called Har From Harvard Square to the Oval Office. It's got more people in it than it's ever had before. So this, but, and there are lots and lots of old and new organizations. And if you want to join or get involved with one of those organizations, I urge you to talk with Ben and Marty after this talk. Don't go on the web to their, they'll just ask you for money on the web. Talk to Ben and Marty. Try to figure out. They'll give you some actual people who you can get involved with. And another organization that people often forget is the traditional political party. The Republican and Democratic parties need your activism. They need sane, competent, skilled people to work at every level, and particularly the grassroots. And you can talk with me about that. So today, Ben and Marty have laid out a set of reforms aimed at bringing democracy back to the people. It's not only a worthy goal, it's a deeply urgent goal. So I urge you all to do what you can to support it. Thank you very much. That was great. So we have a lot on the table in terms of a, a very uh, compelling diagnosis of problem, a lot of suggestions about how we might begin to solve that problem. So we have a fair amount of time for uh, reactions, uh, questions, comments, and a couple of microphones. Uh, uh, oh, no, the microphones are wired, so you're going to have to stand up there. If you could identify yourself before asking a question, that would be wonderful. Hi, um, my name is Paul Shemek, and I've actually been working on a book on a similar topic for a little while now. It's only... An, it's only it's only a website right now. It's called DefectiveDemocracy.com. Anyway, um, so I have a bunch of ideas, but I'll, I'll try to restrain myself. I even have some ideas about how to fix the Senate. But what I wanted to talk about is um, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you talk about um, getting rid of primaries, because I think that's a key thing. And, but, it, but on the other hand, it gets at the gap between what what, what the general public knows, because they think, well, if you're getting rid of primaries, that's like, oh, that's the that's democracy. How do you how do you get rid of um, you know what do you do? So, um, uh, rank choice voting is one of the things that's been out been um, gotten a lot more attention recently with the within in because um, as it was adopted in Maine and it's currently slated to be used in a state election for the first time in June. Um, so that's just in a single member district, but it's ranking and. Um, 
so they didn't get rid of the, the uh, primary, but it certainly could be done because you can handle as many ca candidates as you want. And I'm actually trying to work with Voter Choice Massachusetts, I am working with Voter Choice Massachusetts, and trying to convince them that getting rid of the primary and have a single, having a single election is just as important as getting rid of plurality elections, if not more so. So that's, so that's one thing. But I wanted to add, and this is what I'm gonna get your comments about, another element, and that's this. Um, you know, we always hear oh, America has a two-party system. I think it's more accurate to say that we have a no-party system because with the changes that happened 100 years ago or finished 100 years ago with the development of the primaries, when you have open access to primaries, any, anyone of any political belief could just sign up and join, you know, be a candidate. Um, then the party can't control who, who their members are, who their candidates are. There's no brand control. Um, but also over time, you have more and more obstacles to getting on, even getting on the ballot. Um, so those two things together means, in addition to the single member districts, which people know about, but beyond that, um, the, um, the combination means you have to be crazy to start a new political party in America today. Or put it this way, you have to value, value your ideology more than actually getting elected. But so what instead we have is, one party, the party of incumbents, of careerists, who um, all, all the, in general, I mean, I'm, obviously there's differences and there's good people and they, and they do have ideologies, but basically their only thing is about getting elected. So what I would I like, to ask you to wrap it up, so okay, sorry, I'm trying to, so here's, here I'm getting to the point is, I wonder in terms of the influence of money, whether you think if we could actually develop real membership political parties where something like the Sanders campaign or any campaign you can think of, actually could run candidates, uh, and I mean, I'm assuming this is after we had some reform, so you get rid of primaries, you have open ballot access, but, but even before you got rid of money in politics, would that be a counterweight to, uh, to, you know, to big money and, and special interests? Do you, uh, do you have a question? We could collect a couple of questions. Let's collect questions. Keep it brief. Yeah, I prefer if they answered this question first and then they asked mine. It's quite separate from his, so I don't think it would be much overlap. Uh, okay. Well, I will just say briefly that um, I do agree with the first part of your uh, comment about the, the ease of getting rid of primaries. It's not a hard thing to do, and it would certainly be something that I think would facilitate citizen involvement in elections. Um, and you can imagine something like, uh, you know, California's move to a top two primary. Well, if you had ranked choice voting, you wouldn't need a primary, and you'd be done. Um, so that part is easy. As far as um, do we have a no-party system or a two-party system, I mean, Clearly, the parties are more distinct and more uh, homogeneous uh, relative to each other than they had been you know, in the sort of mid-decades of the 20th century. So in that sense, we very much have a, a two-party system. Um, and I, I do agree that without getting rid of money, it is a challenge for a third party. On the other hand, um, to the, you know, a, a lot of state and local elections don't require a lot of money. And a lot of the kinds of reforms that you know, Ben was talking about are things that can happen and have been happening at state and local levels. And I think that's where a lot of the sort of um, energy and impetus, and that's kind of the channel where a lot of the uh, you know, democratic reforms, that if they get eventually to the federal level, that's where it's gonna come from. So I do think there are opportunities there, even for third parties. If I could add really quickly, the citizen voucher idea has the great advantage that if people want a third or fourth party, they can spend their vouchers on that. So that they, if there's a really vital public financing system, um, I think 
some of the things you would like to see would in fact be possible, including building a new party because the money would be there. Cool. I'll keep this short, short as possible. Hi, my name is Corey Tahira. I'm an MPP Bun student here at the Kennedy School. Um, reading your original paper and then the book Affluence and Influence was uh, inspiring for me. It's part of, part of the reason why I applied to the Kennedy School in the first place and I actually think it should be required reading for all Kennedy School students. I think the school spends a lot of time thinking about what public policy should be, but not how it actually is implemented. Um, and to that point, um, as a student among the student populace, these issues that we're talking about now, um, I would argue not on the radar at all, to be honest with you. And I think you can see by no disrespect to people in the room, but like of who is in this room now, um, there's probably a minority of students here. Um, so to that point, apart from your own work, what are other professors or practitioners in this field that you would recommend someone like myself who wants to encourage others to get involved to uh, go and read or to go and read about the literature and to Professor Mansbridge, what specific activities at the Kennedy School would you recommend someone to get involved in because I've spent the better part of a semester and a half trying to look for this exact speech uh, presentation <laughs> um, so I'm going to take the opportunity to ask in public what we should actually do because I was, yeah, it was very hard to find opportunities at the school to actually get involved in what I think is the most fundamental issue that this whole place should be worried about. <laughs> We're outsiders. <laughs> We're not going to tell you what to do at the Kennedy School. Read, read their book again. <laughs> but we do know, we do know a number of faculty members, uh, you know, who are very much interested in these issues. And if I was going to name them, but when I got to six, I began thinking, then I'll forget number seven and eight. Uh, but maybe start with Miles, for heaven's sakes. It's his job to be doing this. Miles Rappaport. I mean, Stand up, Miles. He's running a study group, by the way. That you I went to the last one. It was good. <laughs> now, lots of opportunities here. So you all should be talking to each other about that. So I'll just add that there, <clears throat> at the beginning of the year, there was a panel on issues in democracy. And out of that came. Uh, a kind of brainstorming group, and out of that came about seven uh, groups, student groups, um, and of those seven groups, one is still going, but that is a very strong group, as you can imagine what was one thing and another. Uh, it was a group that began by calling itself Democracy by Design, interested in the design elements of democracy, and of course driven by these facts. Um, so that group is still going, and if you email me, if anybody here wants to email me, um, I'll put you in touch with that group. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, can you hear me? No, go into the <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Sorry, I have a stiff neck. So, uh, thank you very much for this very interesting presentation. So I'm initially from Europe, and I'm always amazed at the degree of distance between our ideal of American democracy and the reality of its dysfunctioning. And also, I'm amazed by the, the quality of the citizens I meet here uh, at the local level, uh, in my school, you know, in my children's school. So my question is uh, <clears throat> about Tocqueville. You named your book after Tocqueville, right? And in uh, Tocqueville's book, I think there's a role uh, imparted to virtue. Uh, I don't see... Uh, a lot of place made to virtue in, in your book, but you know I haven't read it so far. And there's someone that we didn't mention today. This, this is this new movement of young people 
who are so fed up that the government is killing them, is taking their lives. It seems to me that virtue now lies in a form of indignation that is so strong that it's akin to survival. It's a very strong feeling. Um, <clears throat> so where would you situate virtue in your model, education, the youth, and what, you know, what to do with this youth with, who is really rightly so uh, very, very, very angry? Thank well, you. I mean, one, I think you're right. We don't talk much about virtue um, or about the tradition in American politics, which sort of goes back to the founding that sort of sees kind of civic virtue as a counterpoint to kind of individualist, um, uh, you know, personal interest as a basis for political engagement and action. Um, but I do think that um, it's, it, it's very important to note that uh, citizens, for the most part, in forming the kinds of preferences that the survey data that I had up on the screen there a little while ago, um, in, in forming those preferences, um, it's very clear that citizens are expressing a kind of civic virtue, a kind of um, concern with the well-being of the country and not exclusively with their own well-being. So that the notion that government should respond to the preferences of the majority does not only mean that the interests of the majority will be uh, you know, advanced against the interests of various minorities, because I do think that that kind of like civic-mindedness um, not only inspires political engagement of the sort that we've been talking about that's necessary for a social movement, but also lies behind, to a great degree, citizen, ordinary citizens' preferences on what they want the government to do. So I do think it's absolutely central part of American politics and, and maybe one that deserves more attention than we gave it. Uh, I have a question. Oh, Jonathan Collins. I'm a fellow here and also at, the, at Brown University. Um, my question was about sort of, you, you talk about the need for democratic reforms and you put this in the context of a sort of a history of uh, reform movements, right? I noticed that other than sort of the progressive reforms, most of the reforms are sort of seeped in identity politics. So I was wondering about, you know, do we need some sort of formulation of a kind of a silent, unheard majority sort of political identity to actually materialize into reforms? Or, you know, what, what are we sort of missing with, you know, this, you know, the, the, this mass sort of group that isn't being heard? And turning that into reform seems like it takes some sort of mobilization factor that I'm not, that it's not really clear, like, kind of what that is. So I just wanted to see if, yeah. if you thought about that and if you could talk more about that. Yeah. Definitely an important question, and, and some people have argued you can't have a democracy social movement for precisely that reason. I think you gave part of the answer, which was the progressive movement did not have that kind of identity base. I'd say a second answer is that the working people's movement, the labor movement, had an extremely broad identity base. You could say, well, people identified as workers, and that was important. Um, but why can't they identify as citizens if they can identify as workers? Um, but I think thinking about this and, and uh, there's an element of framing and labeling and so forth that I don't think we've got very far with. But there's, there's space for creative work about how to mobilize people in a way that they actually identify with the movement. Now, I'll 
just add one thing, and that is I've become convinced that a movement for democracy itself is probably not sufficient. It's too abstract. Um, you need to really link it to issues of justice, broadly construed, that have implications day to day for people's lives, including gun control, as was mentioned, uh, but stagnant wages and many other things. And Marty made a, 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 an effort to show the connection, and I think that's something a movement would have to do, show that if in fact you had majority rule in the United States, a lot of really substantively just and progressive things would happen. Yeah, I agree. I would just add that um, we do see that happening, if not at the grassroots level, certainly at the organizational level. So on that slide, Ben mentioned that Sierra Club was up there. So the, the Sierra Club obviously is a substantively focused organization, but they've joined the Democracy Initiative. And if you look on their website, you'll see statements like, you know, we can't protect our environment unless we can change our democracy. So they see the connection between the substantive goals that they have and the democratic reforms that are necessary to achieve them. And so I do think that's like the sort of one key avenue toward creating those kinds of identity-based involvements. Yeah, I think it, it kind of goes to the Kennedy School question a little bit. I mean, you know, the natural Kennedy School impulse is to deal with a substantive issue, and it is a little bit of a leap, easier now than in years past, to show that the process, it, it, you're not going to get the policy outcome without a better process, which is a pretty easy case to make these days. Um, yeah, Hi, uh, my name is Matt uh, McDowell. I'm a Kennedy School MPP2 student in Professor Mansbridge's great class. Um, I wanted to ask, I was surprised to, to hear your recommendations at the end around creating a social movement and mobilizing a large number of, well, I assume you're proposing middle class, you know, normal people, um, <laughs> after showing. Working class people work, would be nice too. Working class and middle, but not the rich, basically. Um, oh, you need some rich. And I, I, well, I was surprised to see that after you showed the slide with the red graphs, basically showing it doesn't matter. You know, if as long as if if the normal people, if a hundred percent of normal people want something, the line's still flat. So, do do you think that we do, as you were saying, need to mobilize? D does this strategy require actually targeting targeting the rich specifically and getting a bunch of rich people on board, or do you, do you think that there is a chance with mobilizing a large number of you know, of non-one percenters to, to create change after showing one, that that doesn't work. quick and easy response to that is wealthy Americans have a history of doing good things, especially when they're scared. <laughs> uh, so giving them a little scare is good, but then there's some wealthy people who have good instincts, good values, and will help out. And the, the progressives probably went too far in, in being led by affluent people, I would say. But nonetheless, they got some of their successes partly as a result. Uh, Theda. Hi, Theda Scotchpole. I teach, teach political science here. Um, one quick comment. The organized rich people on the left have mainly been focused on getting money out of politics. That's ironic, and it hasn't made much progress. Um, Second thing is just a question uh, that I know you've heard before. Um, back that original study that you did, rich are defined in a way that would include the upper middle class in this country. 
So I think we do have to recognize that it's not just the top 1% who may be getting what they want, but upper middle class, uh, professional and managerial people, and if not the students in the room, then the things they're headed for, for the most part, from an institution like this. And you also show that organizations matter, and I know you must have some data on which organizations matter, because one of the obvious questions is whether certain organizations that have mass middle class constituencies are an intervening factor that is registering a certain amount of middle class. Those are just kind of questions that complicate the picture a little bit. But the final thing I want to say is that I'm really puzzled in a way we have seen over the last year a mass movement. Many of the women at those marches went home, and those marches happened all over the country, went home and according to the research that I and others are doing, formed self-activated groups led by white middle-class women, overwhelmingly. Not a glamorous category, but that's just the reality. And they organized principally unremittingly over nine months to a year to save the Affordable Care Act. And although they didn't persuade Republicans to not vote for it, I don't, it was just a, some guy dying of brain cancer and, and Susan Collins in Maine that kept that from happening. It came awfully close. It nevertheless succeeded and it's the biggest small d democratic victory that has occurred in this country in a long, long time. And my point is, that has nothing to do with procedures of democracy, with getting money out of politics, with redesigning the Senate, God help us, this is not, I, it's not gonna happen. I mean, I'm just prepared to predict that. Um, so I'm wondering if we don't need to recognize that when movements actually do form and do dig in and do have an impact, they're about something substantive. Uh, I have yet to see a mass movement, and I would argue with you about the progressive era, that actually succeeded in bringing about procedural reforms that actually deepened American democracy. I would, of course, leave the women's vote movement and the African-American civil rights movement out of that. But those were movements to include people who had been excluded. So I just want to throw that out. I'm just dubious that procedural goals will ever inspire a mass movement. Bunch of points. Let's go to the last one quickly. I think we addressed that to, to some degree a minute ago. I, I would say that we both agreed that you can't make a movement work unless real substantive concerns, day-to-day -day concerns are linked in. But I think there's an opportunity for that. And that in fact that did happen in the progressive period. Uh, a very small thing about the affluent people in, in Marnie's study. Remember, we don't actually know who was influencing policy outcomes among that group. That group included, as you say, professionals, but it also included, at least in principle, multimillionaires, in principle billionaires, although none ever show up in those samples. Um, and our studies of multimillionaires and billionaires as like yours, for heaven's sakes, indicate that those people are really different and have a whole lot of influence almost certainly and have very different preferences. But they're different from the majority of the public in the same ways that the people but at the 90th so, percentile a lot differ so. from those at the 50th. Yeah. Yeah. So I just 
lot of evidence that you, that the top third actually do have a lot of problems with politics. And when we talk about small donors, which have been aggregated by quite a few movements, including Bernie Sanders and Alex Ewan, Barack mm -hmm. Obama, they're not really small. They're professional and managerial people making upper middle class salaries. Right, and but it does. Are reflected in our politics. Sure. But it is also the case that their preferences are very like the average citizen's preferences. That's actually been a critique of Marnie's study, which I think is misconstrued. But it is a fact that the distance between those professional people and the average American is far less than the difference between the Koch brothers and the average American. But we have, we have a long-standing discussion. <laughs> And as to procedural reforms mattering, yeah. I think there's a difference between sociologists and political scientists possibly about this. To a political scientist, how government works really makes a difference. How you count the votes, how people, uh, you know, who votes, what the rule, um, all these things matter. We don't disagree that it's really hard to change them, but some of the rules have been changed before. We believe they can be changed again. Your wording was um, careful, I think. You said you thought that uh, there had been no um, reforms, procedural reforms, that deepened American democracy. But there were some that were intended to deepen de American democracy. Initiative, referendum, and recall. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, but the, some my point, that's exactly why I said your, your wording was correct and well chosen. But it wasn't as if there wasn't an intent. And it wasn't as if those reforms didn't go through as part of the social movement. When you think progressive movement, initiative, referendum, and recall are mixed right up with it. Granted, they didn't turn out the way that the, the reformers wanted things to turn out. Lots of our substantive reforms don't turn out the way the reformers want them to turn out either. But the intent was procedural. And it was expected, the American public thought of it as procedural, and the American public bought it. Those changes came about. So I don't, I think the argument that social movements can't bring about um, procedural change is just wrong. Well, we may have a disagreement. I don't believe the progressive movements were massive. Oh, well, okay. But the progressive movement is the one on which Marty and Ben are sort of. That, that's what they would like to recreate, something mm -hmm. along those lines. So I, I, whether or not it's a social movement, I don't care. But uh, We're almost out of time, but uh, Charles gets the last question. Um, I'm Charles Peterson. I'm a PhD student in American Studies at Harvard and a fellow at the Ash Center. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about the progressive movement because I'm a historian. Um, and it does strike me that the um, amendment that perhaps actually had the greatest effect on democratic participation was progressive taxation, not the procedural, um, I mean, not, not something that's thought of as a procedural amendment in the way that you're, that you're talking about, but progressive taxation provides the resources to fund a welfare state that creates um, you know, much greater opportunity for democratic participation, um, or just you know, creates a much larger government that you can argue about how it should function. Um, it seems to me that the big difference between the progressive era and now is elite belief in democracy. Um, the reason that you saw these you know, turns toward um, the referendum, direct election of senators, was that progressive elites, and I agree with Professor Scotchpole that this was a much more elite-driven movement than perhaps you're recognizing, especially 
after the decline of populism, and all of these amendments pass after the decline of populism, um, that these people believed in democracy in a way that, in my experience at institutions like this, American elites today do not. Um, and so I think when you think about, I mean, what, what, I appreciate, what I appreciate about your project is that it's trying to persuade elites to believe in democracy again. Um, and to persuade them that, you know, if a social movement is, is demanding social resources and not getting them, perhaps elites can turn that to demanding democratic change. Um, but I think you need to recognize to what degree, even in, in the movements you're pointing toward, um, such as, say, the civil rights movement, the demand from citizens was not necessarily for the vote. It was often for basic needs, basic resources. The, the, the turn to the vote was, again, driven by elites. Um, so that's kind of how I see your project actually functioning. Thanks for that input. I mean, I think, <laughs> there's, lot, there's lots to learn from historians. And, um, you know, I think these are all very complicated movements. But I do agree that the role of elites is critical today and probably has been in, in all of these movements in one way or another. Thank you very much for a great presentation. A very You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>